Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 2. I know it's not Isaiah. Philippians 2. Get a couple of Christmas meditations here that have been bouncing around in my noggin over the last couple of weeks. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1, read, well, to 14 or so, 15. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain." Or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad to rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would have your spirit work in our hearts, that we would see Jesus with the eyes of faith, even in this text. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, if you 
haven't been at Christridge for any lengthy period of time or visiting with us today or maybe you've just blocked it out of your memory for various sundry reasons, you might have missed one of Michael's Sunday school series in which I murder your favorite Christmas hymns. It's one of my great pastimes to take your favorite Christmas songs and destroy them for being bad. Yeah. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but only a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I don't entirely know. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. It can't be boiled down quite so simply, but why Christmas songs are just so bad. Right? Just so bad. One of the famous ones that we don't sing, but I know you've listened to, and many of you have probably cried to even this holiday season, was written by an atheist, translated by a Unitarian, and set to music by a Jewish gentleman that rejected Jesus entirely. And yet, O Holy Night has stirred our hearts a hundred times over, hasn't it? Why is it that when it comes to the birth narrative, it's like we turn off critical thinking altogether? Why is it? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, and I'm going to actually set you up because I I think we're going to see an answer to it, maybe hopefully two-thirds of the way through the sermon, why we turn our brains off a little bit when it comes to the birth narrative. Instead, we're going to start with a text that's probably familiar to us all and one that, um, uh, well, I think I memorized most of when I was a little kid. I have it memorized in the NIV. But this starting imperative in verses 3 and 4, the starting command that challenges the listener in a way that I think probably would upset some of us if we spent any lengthy period of time thinking about it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or, I think the NIV is vain conceit, that's how I have it memorized, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is kind of one of those great series of commands that providentially, by God's sweet mercy, happens to coincide with the spirit of Christmas that everybody talks about today, right? We've seen commercials this year. Well, if you're watching TV and not writing a dissertation You've heard people talk about it. This is the season where we think about other people and we we contemplate how do we take care of our neighbor. We'll have good kind of the spirit of brotherhood and care for our neighbor, perhaps. In reality, though, we can look at what the world offers and and actually we can be excited that they're actually talking about it this time of year. I'd, I'd honestly prefer a culture that says we ought to at least try to take care of our neighbor instead of one that preys upon our neighbor. But if we actually stop and just reflect momentarily on this summary of Christian ethics in relationship to one another, it's actually honestly a bit shocking, isn't it? Do nothing from selfish ambition. I mean, if you're really going to kind of pause and think about that, can I, in some sense, be American? I mean, selfish ambition is in so many ways the heart of what it means to be a, a contributing member of American culture and society right now. I always have to be doing something bigger and something better and something greater and something grander. I I have to be advancing and progressing, accumulating a bigger 
piece of the pie for me and mine. I mean, if you and yours suffer, sorry. It's interesting if you actually kind of, again, reflect on it momentarily. Nothing at all from selfish ambition. And this is one of those commands that I think, honestly, it, it, it rattles me when you stop and think about it. Because this is one of those, I think, more than most commands, at least for me, maybe for you, it's so hard to discern when my own sin is lying to me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition strikes at really motives. Do nothing with a motive set that says, I am going to profit at the expense of everyone else around me. I'm going to get one over on you. The problem is, is the lingering corruption of sin within my own heart is literally doing this to me constantly in my head. So that it's amazing how easy it is to say, well, I mean, my motives are pure this time. I mean, apart from Jesus, Genesis 6, 5, the condition of the heart is only evil continually. What would make me think that all of a sudden, just after conversion, I suddenly have this kind of crystal clear lens to view my own motives? It lied to me so sufficiently I was not able to discern my own heart prior to conversion. Suddenly after conversion, I'm able to see with just crystalline clarity what my motives are. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from vain conceit. Here is the emptiness highlighted. The the first term uh, uh, highlights the relational nature of selfishness that I'm going to benefit at your expense. This one now uh, strikes at the, the vanity of it. The emptiness, the hollowness. Benefiting self in a way that leads to nothing. It's unprofitable. It's empty. Like a wind that carries no cooling or no moisture. Meaningless. Verse 4, well, the final clause in verse (laughs) 3. If you think you somehow managed to dodge the first two, I'm not sure how you would have. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Others as more important than yourselves. Now, this is a hard one. Again, if we're going to be honest, this is a difficult one because at the end of the day, if I'm really going to be truthful about what's happening in my head, there is no one more important than me to me. More important to you than you. We value ourselves. Okay, maybe perhaps in the right circumstances or situations, we might be willing to, to sacrifice on behalf of our um, beloved spouse or beloved children or family or f- dearest friends. But really, at the end of the day, it's all about me. It's my opinion that matters most. It's my preferences that matter most. It's my desires that matter most. It's my joys that matter most. It's why I can be so quick 
to be irritated and aggravated with everybody else the second they step in the way of my wants and desires. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves, to give others more weight. This is an interesting thing. How many of you immediately, like kind of your default position is to give other people's opinions more weight than your own. To make us to be good listeners. Eager to understand. Verse 4, now we get to verse 4, builds on it. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I like this because now it kind of reestablishes the boundary now, there, there would be a temptation in verse 3 to misapply it. And the temptation in verse 3 to misapply would be to say that kind of any form of emotional boundaries are bad. That the entirety of my person, and it has to be dictated by you. And this is a very common and easy thing to happen for pastors is that as they stand in front of a group of people week after week and that group of people uh, is responsible for giving out of the, the you know, joy of their heart to pay for my uh, you know, mortgage and for my, my food and for my family, there's a very natural temptation for me to tailor everything about me around what you like. There's a, there's a very natural temptation for pastors to, to, to blur the lines and to let the boundaries dissolve. Now, in, in other settings, those people are often called kind of charmingly doormats, right? The kind of people who won't stand up for themselves is what we kind of politely say. But in reality, what it is, is it's people who don't have healthy emotional boundaries. And instead of being able to give value and weight and preference to other people, they shape themselves around other people. So that the otherness and the self begin to blur. Some of you that may be older in the room, you might have had a high school boyfriend or girlfriend Boy, that relationship was a hot mess, wasn't it? It was just confusing, and it all blew up and went bad. And now looking back on it as an older person, you begin to realize, like, hey, you know what it was? Is at the end of the day, we didn't have good, strong emotional boundaries. The otherness of that person blurred with the self, and boy, we got intertwined. It was a total mess, total disaster. Verse 4 actually reestablishes that. Look, no, you need to look to your own interest. Your interest and everybody else's interests are not aligned always. Right? They're not always identical. You might have, using preaching as an example, you might have the desire to have your ears tickled and say, I want to hear something that's going to make me happy today. And maybe I need to say something that steps on your toes. Maybe I need to say something to help unclog those ears. Maybe you do need encouragement. Those interests don't always align. Verse 4, I love how it establishes those boundaries again. You have the moral responsibility to look for your own interests. You're supposed to take care of yourself. You're supposed to take care of your family. But it doesn't stop there. Your care is to also extend to the people around you, especially those in the family of God. 
Again, I, I like to think about this from the perspective of this is the kind of church I think that all of us would want to be a part of. The kind of church where people are more eager to listen than speak. The kind of church where people are more interested in asking questions than they are in answering questions. The kind of church where you understand intuitively that when you say something to somebody, it means something to them because you mean something to them. The kind of church that is eager to care for one another, and I think you've done that. Again, it's been an interesting thing visiting other PCA churches week after week after week uh, for the last several weeks. And I mean, there are weeks where I would go spend an entire Sunday and nobody speak to me the entire Sunday. And there's an interesting thing about like, man, it's been a long time since I've been a real visitor in a church. I can't remember the last time, I mean, it was vacation, but aside from vacation, I can't remember the last time I was a real visitor in a church, in a PCA church particularly. And it's amazing. It looks a little different. Nobody comes, talks to you, nobody engages you. It's a very different feeling. All right, so this is kind of, in, in many ways, framing out the, the ethics of how the body is supposed to interact. Now, the reality of the matter is, is this is an easy thing to think about in the Christmas context where everybody's happy and I love everybody and I get to see the family that I'm eager to see and hang out with. This gets so much harder the Tuesday after New Year's when everybody goes back to work. This gets so much harder when, okay, maybe the one or two family members that you weren't super excited about seeing showed up anyways. Maybe they weren't invited. This gets so much harder uh, when the neighbor that, <laughs> ooh, they drive you crazy, invite themselves over tomorrow afternoon to just sit down and have a talk when they obviously can't read the room and figure out they're not really welcome in the middle of family time. You see, this, these commands of considering others is, they're, honestly, they're very easy commands when you're dealing with considerate, high-functioning humans. The problem is they get really hard very quickly when you're dealing with either sinful, less high-functioning, or just struggling people. When these commands get actually difficult to implement, they get, they get hard. And interestingly, I think Paul, um, <clears throat> certainly aware of difficult humans, gives this kind of wonderful commentary on these ethics with one of the most beautiful parts of the New Testament. Really just staggeringly beautiful. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So I, I want you to think this way. This mindset of Christ Jesus who, and this is where you get kind of classic Paul interrupts himself on this kind of tangential subclause that really carries the meat of what we need to hear. What was Christ Jesus' mindset like? Well, he's in the form of God. And this is the term, it, we're, they're using high-end kind of Greek terms here that don't exactly translate into the English, but he has the essence of God. Ontologically, he is God. He is the being of God. It might be the better way to say that, but it's a hard translation. We don't have a right exact word. 
This Jesus, though he was in the essence, the being, the person of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be, to be clung to. Right? If you've ever had the unfortunate experience of having to give a cat a bath, right? Maybe the cat got into something really disgusting and wants to kind of come hang out in the house, and you have to get the cat, and you have to put it in the bath or in the shower. And that, that is a, a deeply moving experience that you will never forget for the rest of your life. You will get claw marks in places you didn't know you could get claw marks. You didn't know the cat could get there. They, it's like they just turn into nothing but claws and clinging, Right? everywhere. It's interesting, you would think that that actually potentially could be the the attitude that the Lord Jesus himself would have. I mean, you can imagine it would be very easy for him to say to his father, "Uh, please don't make me go down there. Do you know what it's like? Are you even paying attention to what it's like down there? Please don't make me go down there. I mean, you, you think about actually his starting position, second person of the Trinity, outside time and space, clothed in light, enrobed in glory, and yet, though he did not, he did not count equality with God, that this, this, the glory of God, beauty of God, a thing to be clung to. Instead, he emptied himself. Not emptied himself of his divinity. That's terrible theology, and that's how you get your Christmas heresy hymns. He emptied himself of his glory in his humanity. So where the beauty and complexity of the divine person of Jesus, he's fully God and always been fully God, second person of the Trinity, outside time and space, always has been, but did put on humanity put it on fully so that he is now one person, two natures, both natures, 100% fully real, true natures. Emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And my Christmas meditations this year have really largely been on verse 8. And being in human form, now interestingly, the the language is slightly different here. It's hinting at in the Greek that he is, he's always been God. But he put on something special, became something when he also put on humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. It's intriguing. This is what I've, again, done this year in the bits of extra brain space I've had, considering just how humbling of a story it is. Now, again, we we have so much baggage and good theology when we read the Christmas story that um, it sometimes doesn't hit quite as, as, as profoundly as maybe it should. And our Christmas season is one that's filled with music and light and presence, and brilliance, and beauty, and love, and food, and family, and so it's all joy and excitement. And forget that, you know, maybe the first Christmas wasn't quite that way. 
was perhaps a, a bit more grim if you actually think about it. Right, the story starts <clears throat> with the king of the Jews. The time his name's not Jesus, his name is Joseph, rightful king of the Jews, and an absolute nobody. It actually shows you how bad off the kingship is that your king has had to become a carpenter. He's useless as a king. Has no one to rule, has no land to possess, and every indication from what they go to offer when they go to the, the temple entire, he's poor as all get out. And the offerings that he brings are the offerings of a poor man. Not a king who's clothed in gold and fine raiments, but one who is absolute in poverty. Now, this king rules a rundown kingdom. You actually stop and think what Israel was like at the time, and it wasn't Israel. <laughs> it was a, uh, owned and run by a far, far, far more corrupt nation, Rome. That's why as we read these New Testament stories, we get so confused as to who's actually in charge in the various uh, stories that take place in the ministry of Jesus. And it's confusing because they didn't always even know because you had local governors, you had regional governors, you had Roman governors, you had uh, the emperor, and all of them were kind of constantly in battle against each other. But the one person who had absolutely no say in the land of Israel was the king. He was a neutered king, a useless king. He's a king without a kingdom. With a wife, poor Jewish girl, probably guessing early teens, who would live the rest of her life as a child of scandal. I mean, let's be honest. Let's be honest, old ladies in the room, you all know you can count to nine. You would have been able to do the math because you'd be able to measure nine against the wedding date and you'd be able to know exactly what Mary was up to. I mean, she would say, well, yeah, I wasn't up to that. The Lord gave me a baby. I'm still a virgin. And no one would believe her. You realize this young lady would be potentially, and again, a small town, a small community that had a very rigidly fixed ethic. She would be a scandal her entire life. Getting ready to give birth to a child conceived out of wedlock in a time in which that was scandalous in his own right. Until the birth narrative begins. And it's shocking, actually. You have to give the birth announcement. I love that, that uh, the Lord doesn't just send his own you know, divinely inspired postcard. He, he actually sends messengers to deliver it. He sends angels, but <laughs> who does he notify? <laughs> you can tell what kind of king this is going to be. He goes and notifies nobodies. Doesn't tell the king, doesn't tell the emperor, doesn't tell anybody that matters in human history at all. Tells shepherds, tells mom and dad, aunt and uncle, that's about it. The baby's born, <clears throat> and here comes the true king, 
the real king of the Jews. And interestingly, he's born. And who are the subjects that greet him? Well, he's animals. Oh, and then, yeah, oh yeah, that's right, and Gentiles. That is so shocking to me. That the king of the Jews is being born into such a horribly lowly situation that even the Jews don't come greet him. The Lord has to raise up pagan, unbelieving kings who, by best guess, actually, we don't even know if they're converted. We don't, we don't know. We just know they're unbelievers from a foreign land. Like, he doesn't even have his own people welcoming him. Oh, yeah, and then by the way, right after he's born, all of his friends are killed for it. You forget that part of his story, don't you? That he's born, the, 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 uh, the wise men, the king, the magi, they, they tell Herod, hey, by the way, and so what does he do? He kills all of the babies in that age. So they have to flee to Egypt because the Lord tells them to, so that all of his friends are killed. How do you think that kid grows up in that community? Right? When he comes back from Egypt, how do you think that goes for him his whole life? Poor carpenter, raised in Egypt, all of his buddies are killed. He's the one who didn't die. Oh yeah, everybody knows when he was conceived and when the marriage date is. Like, well, no wonder that when he goes and starts his public ministry, everybody from the town that he's in is like, this guy's crazy. And I love that, like, really, there, there's really one moment in the birth narrative where, like, his real nature kind of cracks through, like, the, where the glory really comes through. It's with the, the shepherds, right? You have an angel that shows up, which, again, if you really want some amusing, go Google biblically accurate angels or let your AI tell you. They're horrifying things, right? Creatures of wings and eyes and fire. I mean, horrifying things. Gives the message to the shepherds, and then if you caught it, just one brief, just a couple of words, it says, and the host of heaven was there to sing. And so for just a brief moment, creation gets to understand who it is that's just been born. And interestingly, who is that, that, that glorious presentation of the light and life and glory of God? Who is it given to? Shepherds out in the boonies. Who are going to come back and everybody's going to be like, how much did you have to drink, Ralph? Like, what were you doing? Did you get into some bad cheese? What, what were you thinking, man? Nobody's going to believe him. Right? Can you, I mean... Yeah, I don't know, man. There was this thing in front of me. It was like fire. It had eyes, and it was wings everywhere, and it was telling me something. And then there's all of them, and they're all singing, and everybody's like, brother, you need to go lay down. Nobody's going to believe that guy. They're going to corroborate, and everybody's going to think, yeah, you all got into it together. You need to lay off the ancient Near Eastern whiskey or whatever it is. 
That's just the birth. And it, it, it's shocking when you actually think about it. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form, the essence of God, he is God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to, but instead emptied himself in his humanity of his glory and instead took on the form of a slave and was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Friends, that gap between where he came from and what he became is so large we will spend eternity studying it and will never plummet steps. The gap between the glories of what he owned but left and the misery that he entered into will never comprehend it. Eternity to study it but never comprehend. I think it's interesting that Paul uses that as an argument for love of neighbor. (laughs) That seems like a weird one. I don't get it. If Jesus was willing to step that low Friend, you can go pick up a piece of trash. If Jesus was willing to come that low, friend, you can go change a poopy diaper. If Jesus was willing to come that low, pick whichever chore you hate the most and put it in there. You can do it. Because here's the thing is, is, Reality of the matter, I I know how the human heart works. I have one most of the time. Most of us will think things like, well, that's not fair. I shouldn't have to do it. Why didn't my brother do it? Why didn't my sister do it? Why didn't my spouse do it? Why didn't somebody else do it? Why didn't the dog do it? This is not my job. It's not fair. Or we'll say things like, why would I want to do that? Have you seen them? They don't deserve that. Have you seen how hateful they were? Have you, have you been paying attention to what kind of person we're actually talking about? They're horrible. Why would I help that horrible, horrible of a person? And I love that, that Paul's argument is, friends, if Jesus can step that low, you can't step lower than he did. Stop complaining and go serve. I love that argument. That is one, friends, that hits hard for me. Because any time I want to have my pride, my selfish ambition, my vain conceit, start whispering in my ear and start saying, no, you're too good for a thing. Was Jesus too good for it? I 
I mean, let's be candid. I mean, let's, let's realistically, let's be candid. Most of us in here had more honorable births than the Lord Jesus himself did. I mean, let's be candid. Let's be honest about that. Most of us, our birth narrative is more honorable than his was. And yet. Well, I, I love that it does bring us low, but it doesn't stop there. And I've preached my whole sermon time, but that's okay. It doesn't stop there. Because you have really both categories of the ministry of the Lord Jesus framed out in Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then here's your second motivation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every niche, you get to see the twofold ministry of Christ. Ministry of humiliation, then ministry of glorification. And friends, honestly, some of us are like, yeah, I I think Jesus got it wrong. I don't want to do that first part. I just want to jump directly to the second. That whole ministry of humiliation thing, I'm going to skip that one, and I'm going to go directly to the the ministry of exaltation, the, the glorification. And again, you have to ask that question, don't you? If it was good enough for Jesus, is it good enough for you? Or put differently, are you too good for that? Are you too good for Jesus? I love this. Verse 9 is just so fun to think about, right? Therefore, it's because of that humiliation. It's because of that lowliness. It's because of that gigantic step down that God has exalted him and bestowed him. Now, most of us have really bad theology here. We're going to say, well, obviously God would do that. He's the second person of the Trinity. Obviously. Well, yeah, he was second person of the Trinity. He still is. That's actually not Paul's point because Paul's actually using, notice which name he puts here. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, that's his human name. He's highlighting here, look, the reason why every knee bows at the name of Jesus is not because simply he's God and he, you know, don't go to jail, you know, skip around all the way to the end, automatically just get victorious. No, in fact, actually, he set the ultimate pattern. Suffer, then victory. And this is where our, our happy heresies and our Christmas hymns tend to really go wrong is they leave this conversation as a simply human conversation. And that's why, again, if you actually look at so many of the English Christian hymns for the Incarnation, so many of them are so bad because many of the authors actually didn't believe Jesus was God at all and just thought he was a good example. They, they don't push his divinity at all. Just his humanity, this is why we can have the good Christmas spirit. It's why we can, again, like I said, O Holy Night, written by a man who's an atheist. Um, why? Because it's, it's actually missing the point of ultimately what's being accomplished. And Jesus' ministry of humiliation, then to his ministry of exaltation. Why? And I, I see the consequence of it that I, I do love so much. 
you get to see verses 12 and then into following all the way into the end of that paragraph 18, that the consequence of it is now you go be obedient. You people of God go be obedient. Stop grumbling. Stop arguing. <laughs> go be blameless. Go live godly lives. Go obey. And honestly, if we're going to be truthful, and this is again why our happy heresies break down, if that's the only story you tell me, I'm no more equipped at the end than I was at the beginning. Right? Poor kid being born in a poor you know, birth narrative, that doesn't really do anything. It doesn't change me. Right? There are poor kids before. I should probably be a good person. There are poor kids now. I should still probably be a good person. Whatever, who cares? The interesting thing is even how Paul has wrapped this, though, is in the middle point, the way that this is, passage is structured, the very turning point of the passage. I skipped over it every time I read it, actually, except for one. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, not just in the birth narrative, though that's humiliating enough, but even humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even obeying to death on a cross. That's it. This is where we differ with our happy heresies because Jesus is a man, but he's not only a man. The very Son of God, he is God himself so that when he went to the cross, he went to do something. So that these commands aren't just kind of vain platitudes, right? These aren't just, oh, pick-me-ups. I should be nicer to my sister. These are things that his death equips you to be. These are the, the commands that he's actually shaping you into. I mean, we, we don't tend to talk about this way, but it's the truth of it. When we talk about heaven, most of us are like, hey, I'm looking forward to the new life to come where I won't hurt anymore, or I won't be sad anymore, or there won't be death anymore. And praise God, I do look for all of those things. But part of it is when I get into the life to, the come, the life to come, I will by essence, by nature, not be able to do anything from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And I will by nature and by essence always in humility count others as more significant than myself. And by nature, I will do, there will be no grumbling coming out of my mouth or disputing. And I will indeed be blameless and innocent a child of God. That's what the new life is. Again, it's really interesting that our definition of heaven, more often than not, is really just that misunderstanding of the humiliation and glorification. And missing out that, you know, really the life to come is a life of righteousness. Yeah, I'm not going to hurt. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to have tears. I'm not going to have sore, you know, sadness, those things. But I will live in Christ in godliness so that I will not be able to grumble. Oh, that will be fun. I won't be able to be selfish. He changes us. Friends, a quick application and end. I would encourage you as you go about this Christmas season to contemplate the tremendous mercy of your Savior residing in the glories of heaven, 
stepped inside time and space and energy and matter forever. Again, you realize the day he stops being human is the day we all go to hell. He has to be human. He's our mediator. And as we reflect on his humility and his kindness and his mercy and his grace, might it stir a little bit love, a little bit more of love in our hearts for him, but also stimulate a little bit of love in our hearts for each other, even when we're not quite as lovely as we ought to be. And truly, our God loves the unlovable. That's why we're here. This is kind of on our resumes. How generous and gracious he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. And the salvation that he gives. Forgive us for our sins. For Christ's sake, amen.